generosity that we've been able to be generous beyond Genesis is through a ministry out of Haiti called Nehemiah Vision Ministries. Uh, Esperandu Pierre is the director of this ministry. We love Esperandu. For those that have been to Haiti, you know who Esperandu is. He's been here to speak in the past. Well, he was in town this past week, very short visit, and, and our elders, uh, we had a chance to meet with him and to pray with him and just to hear some of the continuing words. But I also want to tell you, we've got a trip. Our next trip to Haiti is scheduled for February, and there's information in your worship program on that trip today. Uh, we've also got a, an application packet back at the Info Hub, if that's something that you'd like to do. Um, I, I've had the privilege of uh, going to Haiti twice now, and it's been about a year and a half since I was there last with a team from Genesis, but we were there one year after the great earthquake that we've all heard about, and, and many of you saw firsthand but at the same time, uh, when we were there, it was the one-year anniversary of their church. Uh, this great church that's growing and coming together in Shambrun, Haiti. And it was really exciting to be there on that Sunday morning. And for those that are with me, you, you might remember that people came from all over the country to be a part of this celebration service. Family members and other pastors would drive there. And, and you've got to know if you've never been to Haiti before, driving from one place to another can present a bit of a challenge. Uh, but they would come from all the places. And so people just packed under this tent. And we were there, this Genesis team, and kind of gathered off to the side. Well, you know how we get a little antsy when a service goes 70 minutes or 75 minutes or something. Well, this service went on for three and a half hours. Now, you know, the faithful pastor that I am, I mean, about two hours into it, I was like, I, we get it. Like, we know. I mean, I mean, they not only had one message, they had like four messages. And in between each message, they would sing. And then they'd sing again. And it was, it was so fun to watch all of these people with their hands in the air and they're praising and they're praying all these men and women. And as I watched them, you know, in all of this enthusiasm, it just struck me. It struck me that it's possible to have so little physically, but realize that you have so much spiritually at the same time. That when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and when you can enjoy his forgiveness and when you can enjoy his promise of eternal life, it really is the only thing that matters. And as I watch, I mean, the thing, I guess the question that I had to wrestle with was, does, does the re- does a relationship with Jesus Christ, does it mean the same to me? That, that when I look at my own life, that I could realize that I could lose anything but still have everything all at the same time. I mean, how, how do you feel about something like that? Again, so we're in this series, Big Church. And over the past few weeks, uh, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. We've been talking about the fact that the church is a movement. Uh, it's not a place. It's not a building. But it's a gathering of people. And, and from the very beginning, the church, when the church is getting it right, it's been about a movement of people committed to one great big message. And that is the message that Jesus is the risen Christ, the son of the living God. And we've been looking at the book of Acts together and, and we've been asking different questions, questions like how in the world did this message and did this church survive the first century? And why is there a church today? Or how about the fact that 2,000 years later, why does one third of the world's current population acknowledge that Jesus Christ was sent from God and that he died to save us from our sins? Well, I feel like one of the great answers, the great answer to those questions comes right out of the book of Acts. And if you've got your Bibles today, I want to invite you to take them and turn to Acts chapter 8. 
I'm going to tell you in advance, we're going to look at a whole bunch of verses today. And if you had problems getting into the building or getting your kids checked in today, it's kind of my fault. I apologize for that. But we're going to look at a whole bunch of verses. Uh, We're going to look at Acts 8 and then we're going to skip over and look at others in Acts 9. But as a quick review, uh, the book of Acts is a history book. And chapter 1 opens with Jesus Christ before moments before he ascends into heaven. And then as you get into chapter 2, we find Peter, who under the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit, preaches the gospel message. And the Bible says that 3,000 people respond and surrendered their life to Jesus Christ and joined this movement called the church. Well, as the next couple of weeks passed, the church quickly grew to 5,000 and then to as many as 10,000. And as you can imagine, with all of this rapid growth and with all of this enthusiasm in Jerusalem, well, that it really frustrated the Jewish ruling authority at the time. You know, these Jewish leaders worked hard to preserve the teachings of Judaism. And at the same time, these leaders were responsible for keeping peace and for keeping order in Jerusalem. I mean, they were under, Israel was under the strong authority of Rome at the time. And if at any time Rome ever got word that these leaders were losing control, that things were getting out of hand, nothing would have stopped them from stepping in to seize complete power and authority once and for all, and they'll eventually do that. Well, these Jewish leaders, they've got a problem developing. I mean, there are thousands of people running through the streets, you know, waving their hands, sharing this message of Jesus. And so they've got a real mess on their hands, and it doesn't take long for persecution to break out. And as we saw last week, the Jewish leaders, they had the 12 apostles arrested, and they told them to stop speaking about the resurrection of Jesus. And before they released them, they threatened them, and they flogged them which just basically means that they were whipped with an inch of death. And in verse 41, here's how they responded. Verse 41, Acts chapter 5, I'm sorry. Verse 41 says, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Now that's bold. I mean, that's the bold that we talked about last week. I mean, notice that they didn't go into hiding. You know, it's not at this point in Scripture that we see all these questions emerging. You know, they weren't asking, you know, why why do good things happen to bad people? Or, you know, I, I thought God loved me. I mean, if he really loved me, why would he ever let something like this happen? We don't see that. I mean, nothing is going to slow them down. I mean, they witnessed the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and they got to make sure that everybody knows that. And so the weeks passed and the church grows and it doesn't take long before the message of Jesus is now overflowing out of Jerusalem. And because of all of this growth, the church began to develop some structure. And as you read it for yourself, you'll find that they just started to develop some leadership. And one of those appointed was a man, a man by the name of Stephen. All right. Now, we don't know a ton about Stephen, except that he was one of the first deacons in the church. Now, the word deacon simply means servant. It's an appointed servant. And so he's one of these first appointed servants. And and his story is a great one. We're going to breeze right through it. But he was eventually arrested for his bold faith. And like the apostles, he went and he stood before the Sanhedrin. And when given the opportunity to defend his passion for Jesus, he launched into one of the greatest sermons, the longest sermons the Bible records. And you can read it for yourself in Acts chapter 7. 
But with this message, Stephen basically launches into this review of the entire Old Testament and the ancient prophets and their writings and how for each and every one they were always pointing to Jesus. That Jesus is the solution. He is the answer to it all. I mean, he's basically saying all of it, every word, it all points to Jesus. And then when he gets to the end, of this message, this very direct message with the Sanhedrin, he gets personal with them and he directs a series of statements and questions at the Sanhedrin, basically asking, why don't you see this? Like you're so narrow-minded. In fact, you know, you are the ones, you are the very ones that crucified the Messiah. Now, at the end of his message... And I don't recommend that you respond to any of my messages in this sort of way. But the members of the Sanhedrin, they picked him up. And the Bible says that they dragged him out of the city and they threw rocks at him. And they threw rocks at him and until he died, they killed him. And that's why Stephen is identified as the first martyr in the church. And once he was killed, it really empowered and motivated these Jewish leaders to unleash this violent persecution against the church. And that's where we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 8, beginning in Acts 8.1. Um, I, I want to point out to you that Acts 8, if you read the book of Acts from beginning to end, Acts 8 is a major transition point in the book for a couple of reasons. Remember, again, as I said a second ago, Acts is a history book. All right, from beginning to end, it reads like history. And Luke is given credit for recording these events, these important events in the early church. And in Acts 8.1, Luke introduces us into this new period of persecution, but also to a new character, a character that will uh, be with us for the remainder of the book. Acts 8.1 starts like this. It says, and Saul approved of their killing him. So we meet Saul. Uh, Saul's a Hebrew name. And Saul is the man that you and I know as the Apostle Paul. Uh, Now, the name Paul was either a Roman surname because Saul was a Roman citizen or the name Paul might have been the Greek pronunciation of his Hebrew name. Either way, I just want you to know from this point forward, Saul is Paul, Paul is Saul, all right, as we go back and forth. And he's the one standing and he's a first-hand witness to the execution of Stephen. And then verse 1 continues. It says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, why is this a great transition point? Here's what I want you to see. Acts 8.1 is a fulfillment of what Jesus had declared in Acts chapter 1.8 when he says, but the Holy Spirit, when, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. He said this before he ascended into heaven to his disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And so while the first seven chapters of Acts are all about the church's ministry in Jerusalem, chapter 8 marks the moment now when the message is going to expand beyond Jerusalem into the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. And I just want to point out the fact, and I think it's pretty incredible when you think about it, that what gets it started, it took a tragedy and a crisis in the church. I mean, it took persecution to get God's message outside of the city now into the surrounding areas, just as Jesus promised it would be. We'll come back to that again in a second. Verse 2 says, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned for him deeply, deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So now, 
we meet this Saul Paul guy, and he's not a nice guy. I mean, we've got all of this persecution breaking out against the church, and Saul's the ringleader of it all. And so he went from place to place. He went from home to home, rounding up these Christians. I mean, his goal was to bring this movement to an end. And Luke tells us that this persecution by Saul and others went on for about three years. And so for three years, Paul had many Christians arrested and thrown in jail, and many were put to death. But at the end of three years, something incredible happened that changed everything from, for Saul and changed everything for the spread of the gospel. Flip over, if you would, to Acts 9. Let's pick it up in verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if, any, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, again, there's something else I think that's worth noting here. At this point in history, these followers of Jesus, they're not called Christians yet. All right, this isn't going to come for a little while. I mean, they, they don't have a church building. There's no church bus, you know, or anything like that. I mean, this entire movement for at least a while, was referred to as what some called the way. In fact, you'll see it there in the scripture, maybe in your own Bibles, and even how the word way is capitalized. And the theory is that they were called the way because of how and because of what Jesus taught. I mean, do you remember? We've talked about this verse here before, and maybe a verse that you've heard, you might not be able to find it, but in John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that was a narrow statement then. And I think we all know and could understand why that's a narrow, and even by some, they would say a very arrogant, closed-minded statement today. And so, unfortunately, there are churches that are willing to compromise a message like that, and even Christians that are willing to, to compromise on this message. But I just have to ask, how can we? I mean, how could you compromise such a message? Jesus leaves no room for this whatsoever. And apparently, this statement and this teaching by Jesus was so central in his teaching then, and everyone knew it, that it didn't take long before this movement, this church, you know, was simply called the way. Verse 3. It says, As he neared Damascus, this is Paul on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, what's the implication here? Jesus says, Saul, what you do to my people, you're doing to me. And you know what that means for us? We're the church. I mean, we are the church. We are Christ representatives here on this earth, not just individually, but collectively together. We are the hands and the feet and the mouth of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so important. And again, I'll just challenge you once again to be the church. I want to call you. I want to challenge you to step out and to be the church. And yeah, I'm talking about everyday living and everything that you do outside of this place Monday through Saturday. But I'm talking about even here on a Sunday with us to be the church. And one of the ways that you can be the church is to serve on a team and to be the hands and the feet of Jesus for someone else because we are Christ representatives here on this earth. And God wants to use you. And until you get in the game, that team of sorts is incomplete. But it's also why we challenge you and we talked about living boldly 
last week, and we passed out wristbands as you left. I've still got mine on. It's been a great reminder for me, but to live boldly. You know, we're called to live boldly in every aspect of our lives. If you didn't get one of these and you want one, we've got them at the, the info hub when you leave. But I heard stories from my talk last story. Story from her way long ago, they would kind of decide and help and living boldly. And a, an email from someone who said, you know, I, I was having a phone conversation with a coworker this past week, and they were telling me about some really hard times. And so I just I prayed for them on the phone as a way of living boldly. You know, we are called to live boldly because we are the church, and and I want to challenge you to be the church. Verse six, uh, here's what Jesus said to to Saul, Paul. He says, "Now get up and go into the city." And you will be told what you must do. And so Saul gets up and he realizes that he can't see. He's blinded now. His world's been flipped upside down. And so he ends up in this home where for a few days he can't see. All he can do is pray. And meanwhile, there's another guy in Damascus by the name of Ananias. And that's where his story picks up. And and if you go to verse 10 and for these next six verses, uh, God's going to call Ananias, a member of the way, this church. And he's going to say to Ananias, hey, I know it's going to sound crazy, but here's what I want you to do. There's a guy by the name of of Saul, and I'm changing his life. (laughs) All right. And and he's my chosen instrument. And I'm going to use this guy, this unlikely candidate, to do some great and amazing things in this world. But I need you, Ananias, because this work of transformation is not done in his heart yet. And so I need you to go. I need you to go where Saul is. And I need you to lay hands on him. And I need to pray into him and speak into his life. And so Ananias agrees, but he's a little freaked out. All right? Because, again, Saul's got a reputation. I mean, he's enemy number one of the church. But in spite of his fear... I want you to notice how Ananias, he obeys and he goes to where Saul is and he lays hands on him and he prays for him. And Luke tells us that something like scales fell from Paul's eyes and he was able to see again and the two prayed and Ananias looked into the eyes of Saul, soon to be Paul, and he told him that God was giving him this unique and important mission, a message to take the name of Jesus Christ beyond Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth. And picking it up in verse 19, it says, And after taking some food, he regained his strength, because he'd been through a lot. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? We've heard a little bit about his history. And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Meaning, are we sure this isn't just a big joke? Yet verse 22 says, yet Saul grew more and more powerful. I think you could insert the word bold. And baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, for the next 12 to 15 years, Saul, Paul, essentially disappears. Now, he shows up from time to time, but for the next 12 to 15 years, all we know is that he got an education and he studied and he spent time with Jesus' disciples learning from them. And and we know that he went to Jerusalem on at least two occasions and he learned from the stories and he heard the words from these disciples, these other followers who had seen Jesus for themselves. And after 12 to 15 years of preparation, Paul launched out into what we call Paul's missionary journeys. In fact, we've got a map here for you today that just kind of uncovers and displays many of the cities that Paul traveled to 
over the next years, that he traveled through places like Turkey and Greece and all throughout the Mediterranean region. And along the way, he stopped in these cities that that are noted here, and he planted these little ecclesias, these, these churches, while the apostles remained in and around Jerusalem. I just think it's pretty fascinating working on one church. Paul's taken on the world. You know, planting all of these churches. And for 10 or 11 years, he traveled by boat and by foot, speaking in the synagogues and in public places. And his passion and his purpose was preaching the name of Jesus. And there were a lot of difficult times along the way, too. I mean, we're we're fast-forwarding through his story. I mean, there were times when he was beaten. There were times when he was stoned, first-century style, uh, and, and arrested. And nothing could prevent him from taking the message of Jesus Christ to others. I mean, it was his great mission. And I just want to remind you that that is our motivation as a church too. That we believe we are called, our mission is to help people find their way back to God. It's about sharing the big message with others in this community and even beyond. And, and we're working hard towards, you know, humbly and all for God's glory, developing this reputation of being a reproducing, multiplying, generous sort of church. I mean, it's why we are now one church in two locations. Because we as Genesis Church, we want to be known. We want to be a part of planting, uh, of establishing new campuses, you know, in and around this Indianapolis area. We, we want to be a church that plants churches. We, we want to be a church that, that empowers and releases missionaries to go out and serve. We want to be a church that empowers children and students and men and women and, you know, to go out and, and to live for the name of Jesus in every corner of this community, anything we can do to share the message of Jesus Christ with others, that's what we believe we are called to do as a church. And that's the way that Paul lived his life. You know, and he went to places like Corinth and Athens and Ephesus. And in 58 AD, he was arrested in Jerusalem and eventually would wind up back in Rome after two years, or for two years under house arrest. And it was during this imprisonment that he wrote a letter to the people of Ephesus, which we now call Ephesians. And he wrote a letter to the people of Philippi, which we now call the book of Philippians. He wrote those from prison. And after two years of house imprisonment, he was released, but rearrested again in 67 A.D., And he spent over a year in prison this time, but it wasn't house arrest on this occasion. It was now a real dungeon. And Nero was the emperor at the time. And if you know anything about Nero at all, you know he wasn't very fond of Christians. And one morning, somewhere around 68 AD, we know from history that Paul's prison door opened and the guards led him outside of the city and they cut off his head. And there was no ceremony, there were no eyewitnesses, and no one knows exactly where he was executed. But his life ended. But the impact had really only just begun. And a year later, this terrified, psycho sort of Roman emperor Nero committed suicide fearing that he would eventually be assassinated. And I just think it's pretty impressive that today no one names their kid Nero, but a bunch of people have named their kid Paul. I didn't like it as a kid. People called me Polly Wally Doodle all day, all the time. And I remember asking my mom and dad to change my name. But I can't help but mention something right here. When you look at Paul and you look at the tragic way that his life came to an end, I just want to point out that very bad things can happen to very good people. And God still sits on his throne. And very unexplainable things 
can happen to incredibly faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And God is never, not once, rocked when something bad happens. I mean, not once in the book of Acts do we find Christians huddled together, afraid that God has lost control, doubting or questioning whether God loves them or not. But what we find over and over again is a bold commitment to the life-changing message of Jesus. Some of my favorite words from Paul that I think could breathe purpose into your life. If you want to give a gift to your children and pray a prayer over them, something from Scripture, I'd say Acts 20, 24, when Paul says, before he died, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. See, Paul had a clear and a very bold purpose for his life. And his purpose was that he gave his life for the sake of Christ and he gave his life for the sake of others. His boldness and his passion, really, it's why we get to hear the message of Jesus today. It's why we get to gather in a place like this today. He says, my goal and my aim, everything that I'm focusing my life on is to testify to the good news of God's grace, basically sharing the message, sharing the hope of Jesus with others. You know, just before he died, you know, again, and as you quickly review his life, Paul had the opportunity to travel all throughout what was the known world at the time. And he really was able to speak from a very unique platform. Paul was a Jew, but he wasn't just any Jew. I mean, even before he knew and surrendered his life to Jesus Christ, he was a brilliant scholar of sorts. And he knew the ways and the teachings of Judaism. And because of this experience, he had a platform where as a missionary and as an evangelist, he was able to be very effective in his communication with those who were Jews. He could find common ground with them. And like Stephen did with his message, Paul was an expert in being able to go back through the Old Testament and show how it all added up, the answer the solution was ultimately found in Jesus. And while he demonstrated the ability over and over again to go deep and the ability to speak to the minds of the intelligence and the scholars of the day, he also had the ability to get to the very essence, the very core of the message, that even in all of the details and all of the questions of Scripture, Paul was able to boil it down to one takeaway, to one bottom line of sorts, with people. And so in the book of 1 Corinthians, I want to look at just a few more verses with you before we wrap up. Paul really gives us a synopsis of the message. And in this passage, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul defines as clear as anywhere else in the Bible exactly what the gospel is, what is at the very heart of his message and our message today. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Here's what he says He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Now skip over to verse 3. He says, For what I received, because it's in my life, I've now passed on to you as of first importance. Basically saying, if you forget everything else, don't forget this. Because here's your most important takeaway, and here's what he says. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, and then to the twelve. He's talking about the disciples here. And after that, he appeared to more than 500. Paul's like, hey, if you don't believe me, there are over 500 people in Jerusalem that can talk to you about this. Uh, and, and then he says, of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, 
And then he says, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Paul's basically saying, hey, look, I know you might find it hard to believe that there would be one who would die and then would come back from the dead. But I'm just telling you, there's a whole bunch of people that saw him with their eyes. They heard him with their ears. And it is true. And there are over 500 witnesses to this. And if you want to talk to them, you can get on a boat and go to Jerusalem. Or you can get on the megabus and go to Jerusalem. And you'll find them there. And you can hear it for yourself. And then in verse 7, he continues, he says, Then he appeared to James, Jesus did, and then to all the apostles before he ascended. And last of all, Paul says, He appeared to me also. Remember his conversion on the road to Damascus? As to one abnormally born. Now get this, verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I mean, we know a little bit about his history. And his reputation. And Paul basically says, I mean, it's just the humility of his words. I don't know why God picked me. And when you look at my life, my life's a mess. But he picked me. He chose me. And I want to take just a moment today to remind you that I don't know what your past is. I don't know what you've done. I don't know who you've offended and who you've hurt. Or how many times you've been in trouble or struggled with addictions. Maybe you've been divorced. Maybe you've asked lots of questions. Maybe you've been in and out of the church all your life. Maybe you've called yourself an atheist or you are one today. I want you to know that God can use you. And that here's one of the great and incredible things that he can do with your life. Kind of like with Paul. He can give you a platform for which you can share your faith and hope with others that even the junk that you've been through, the mess that maybe you believe you've made of your life, that God can redeem all of that. And he can use that as your platform for which you can share the hope that you have. Remember, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. He wraps this up in verse 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I didn't do it on my own. I can't fix my life and you can't fix yours either. And he says, and his grace to me was not without effect, meaning I'm not going to waste it. And because he died on the cross for me, the least that I can do is give my life for him. And he's saying, you know, I don't deserve it, but God chose me and he loves me and I'll never be the same again. I want to hit just a couple of verses again with you there. Just kind of the very core, again, the very essence of what Paul is saying. In verse 3, if you go back, he says, For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. Now, here it is. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500. Paul basically says, hey, here's the bottom line. It's the core of everything we believe today. It's the central message. It's the irreducible minimum, as some say. It's four statements there in your notes. That Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. And he appeared to others. He lives today. I mean, he did this for the disciples. He did this for over 500 others. And for the people listening during Paul's day, for many, there had to be a whole series of questions that would follow. I'm sure he heard it all the time. Well, yeah, I get that, Paul. But what about this? 
Or, you know, I, I don't understand this because I've read about this in the Old Testament and that, so I'm really not sure how it adds up to this point. And Paul's like, hey, I know you've got a whole bunch of questions, but I'm just here to tell you today, here's what you need to know, and here's where it all begins. That if you don't hear anything else, hear this, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead and he appeared to others. And that's just the message that I want you to see with your own eyes and I want you to hear with your own ears today that Jesus Christ died for your sins. That he was raised from, he was buried and he was raised from the dead and that he appeared to others. And, and do you get that? I mean, will you, will you just take a moment and hear that for you personally? You know, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey today, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, and that he appeared from, to, to others. I mean, that message has the ability to change you or to remind you of everything today. But, but maybe you're smarter than that, and so you'll hear something like that, and you'll say to yourself, okay, well, I hear that, but here, here are my questions. Like, what about creation? Like, and did it really happen in six days, six literal days, seven days? And what about the dinosaurs? I don't really know how they fit into all this. Can I just tell you, you can, you can worry about that later, but would you just wrestle with this, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose from the dead and he appeared to others. But, but, but you're like, you know, yeah, but what about the book of Revelation? Because I've heard about like fireballs and dragons and all these different things in the end of times. And I don't really know how that all pieces together. Can I just tell you that you can worry about that later, but what really begins today is that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that he was buried. And he rose from the dead and he appeared to others. Like, that's what I want you to wrestle with. I mean, that's really the only thing that matters because Paul's like, you know, here's what you need to know. Here's the bottom line. Here's the starting point for it all. This is where it all begins. This is the central message. This isn't what you finally embrace when you get all of your questions answered. And if you're wrestling with things like, you know what, I used to go to a church and they ran me off or I used to go to a church and I fell asleep there every week or... My mom and dad raised me to go to church, but guess what? My dad ran off with another woman. I realize those are tough questions that need to be wrestled with. But if you're going to wrestle with anything today, wrestle with this one, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, and he appeared to others. And it's true, and it's the only message that matters in this world today. And so my question for you is, have you embraced it? Have you embraced that message personally in your life where you could say that Jesus Christ died for my sins and he was buried for me and God raised him to life for me and he appeared to others so that I could know that truth and live for that truth in my life and embrace it today? Many have. And I had the privilege this past week of meeting with a young man right here in our church and uh, he came in and we sat out there in the cafe and talked together and he told me about his family and how they've been coming to Genesis for a while now and they love being here every week. And I'll tell you, it was a real blessing for me. I had the privilege of hearing his story. And he told me a story of pain and he told me a story of questions and he told me a story of some of the difficult decisions that have been made and consequences because of them. And I had the opportunity to ask him, have you embraced the message of Jesus with your life? And I'll never forget the way that he looked at me and said, oh, yeah. In fact, you need to know it just happened a few weeks ago. I had to spend some time in jail. And I remembered how in the services you give people the opportunity to surrender their lives to Jesus. And I prayed that prayer for myself right then and there. And 
You know, everything hasn't changed for me, and I know I've got to work through all these things, but I know that something is different and something has changed, that I have Jesus Christ in my heart, that He died for me and He rose from the dead for me, and now I can share that message with others. Have you embraced a message like that? I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that today. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? And uh, if you've never prayed a prayer and surrendered your life to Jesus before, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Wherever you are right now, um, just pray this prayer with me. And you can pray it silently or you can pray it out loud if you'd like. If you've never invited Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, just pray this with me right now. Father, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I believe he was buried for me. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. Today, I embrace him as my savior. And I'm trusting him to forgive me for all my sins in the past, present, and in the future. God, take me into your family today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. God, I I thank you and I give you thanks and praise for all of those prayers that have been lifted up in the room right now and this morning and even after now, God. And I pray that you would respond to those prayers and you would put that confidence in those who have prayed those prayers today that they belong to you. And, And while everything might not appear to change around them immediately, God, I pray that you would give them the confidence and the faith to believe that their life has been radically changed forever and for eternity because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that nothing could ever strip that away. Nothing can ever take God's love away. God, challenge every single one of us in the way that we live to pray a prayer like the Apostle Paul prayed that my life, my aim is to give my life, to finish the race for the sake of you, Jesus, and for the sake of others. We pray this in your name. Amen.